That's so good. Thank you, Samuel. Appreciate that. Um, if you could open up your Bibles to uh, the book of James. The book of James. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through um, 12 this morning. And let me just uh, put this over here for a second. Sorry, Dave. I'll try to remember to move this when I'm done. Okay. Uh, James chapter 5. We've been, this is the 11th message in the book of James now. Uh, we are uh, going to be landing the plane next week. Uh, we'll close it out with uh, the rest of the, the letter. And if you've been with us for any sort of time, uh, you've probably seen that there's this common theme that has been running throughout uh, James's uh, ideas here, and that though there are many different topics that James tackles, the one that keeps coming uh, back and back again every week is how to have faith in real life. You know, another way to put it, perhaps, maybe it would have been more of a, a catchy sermon series title, uh, would have been to call it How to Live Well, because that is uh, what James is teaching us throughout this letter of how to live well. He has taught us essentially that faith is a verb. It's not just a theory. It's not just a, a knowledge or an idea. It is indeed an action. He has taught us how to treat other people, that we shouldn't show partiality, that racism is an affront uh, to the identity of humans made in the image of God. He has taught us how powerful our words are, that our words have the power to destroy or to build up. He has taught us about conflict. What are the roots of conflict, and, and how can we uh, manage conflict? <clears throat> Excuse me. He has shown us how to gain wisdom in a world in which everybody is an expert and everybody is a critic. He has taught us uh, to number our days, that we have no right to brag about our positions or our own lives. He's taught the rich how to use their money for good. He's taught us all these things about how to live well. But in today's passage, he returns to his original topic of how to live well in the midst of suffering. And if you were here for our very first message in James chapter 1, uh, you recall that James, at that time, dealt with the big questions of life. The big questions of why is there suffering? Why do we go through these things? Why does God allow them to happen? And now in chapter 5, he returns to the idea of suffering... And he's no longer dealing with those philosophical big questions of why, but now he comes and tackles the idea of how. How do you live well in suffering? How do you live well when days are hard, when, their body, when your body is painful, when you're going through different things, when the pain is so intense that we don't know up from down or left from rights, and life feels like all we're trying to do is keep our head above water and just breathe. And now it's here that I want to take uh, a moment and, and 
talk personally and pastorally for just a moment that approaching a text like this is very difficult. It's not difficult to to understand what James is getting at. That's not the difficult part is here. It's difficult because it's easy to trivialize suffering. And I don't want to pretend that I know or understand what you may be going through, what you have gone through, or maybe what you will go through. I am well aware that there are deep, very complex, hurtful ways that you may have suffered. Health crises, infertility, guilt from sin, abuse, abandonment, grief from loss, fear of the future. There are so many different ways that we can suffer in this world, and some of us are going through hurts that are very, very real. Scars are deep, and you may not know how to cope. And so, I want to be sure that I'm clear that as I approach this text, I'm trying to do it with as much sensitivity as I can, freely admitting my ignorance of the intensity of maybe what you are going through. But... My desire for you is that you would find hope in Jesus. And my desire is that you would come out of this message with knowing that wherever you are in your suffering, that you can indeed live well. You can suffer well. And so it's with that in mind that I invite you to to look at James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. James writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of patience, uh, suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you be the minister to us in this message? Lord, all of us have gone through, are going through, will go through difficult days, and so help my words be a comfort, not a hindrance. May the Holy Spirit make Christ real in the midst of intense pain. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. So there's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this planet by which suffering will not be a reality for them. It's part of the human existence, it's part of our reality, living under the curse of sin. But believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been empowered to live well. And I think that James describes the process of living well in three ways through our passage. The three things are that we must be patient in suffering, 
that we must continually recall God's goodness in suffering and that we must live in integrity during suffering. So let's, let's break those three down. Let's first look at uh, what James first says to us, that we need to be patient in suffering. You know, we are not a people that can be defined by our patience. Uh, I can uh, remember when I was back to school shopping when I was, uh, when I was just a, a kid and was way different back then. Um, there are some things today that are really similar. We took our kids to, to Shopco to get their supplies. And, you know, I remember going to Target with my brother and my mom and just being really excited to go to that section and get our crayons and our trapper keepers and our folders and all those kind of cool things. And so that hasn't changed. But one thing that was way different than how we did it back then for, for um, a, a lot of ways is really how we even look at uh, buy our, our back-to-school clothes shopping. I don't ever remember actually going to a physical brick-and-mortar store for back-to-school shopping, but what I do remember was in late August, or uh, sorry, late July, early August, my mom calling my brother and I to the kitchen table so that we can look through the J.C. Penney's catalog or the Sears catalog. How, how many of you remember doing that? Yeah, youth, you don't know what you're missing. This was so cool. You would look through this magazine, you'd pick out what you want, your mom would cut a check, it'd go in the mail, and uh, you'd, have to, uh, you'd have to wait. We didn't have Amazon Prime back then. It was more like Amazon Primitive. You had to wait for these kinds of things. Um, once, once your mom sent in that order form, you had to wait, and sometimes it took a long time. USPS is incredibly slow. Some things never change. And when it gets to uh, the factory or the, the warehouse, they have to process it. They got to clear the check. They got to fill the order. They got to send it in the mail. There wasn't overnight shipping. There wasn't two day shipping. You just had to wait. You had no other option. Today, you, you have Amazon Prime. You can do two day uh, shipping, and it's part of being a member of Amazon Prime. If you really need it, you can overnight it and you have it the next day. If you live at uh, a more metropolitan area, um, you can get it even same day now in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these markets. Um, and so, well, lost my place there, sorry. Um, you know, uh, wow, having a bad day today. <laughs> Please pray for me. What's that? We know Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, if there's any area in life by which we can, um, you know, where patience is severely tested, it's in the area of suffering. And James is writing to a group of people who were suffering in various ways. Last week we looked in verses 1 through 6 and we talked about uh, these wealthy Christians who were exploiting the poor, who weren't uh, paying their bills, who weren't uh, paying their contractors, who maybe had employees that did work for them that, uh, that they weren't uh, paying up. And so the readers of this section here were probably the ones who were suffering financially because of this rich oppression. The poor couldn't pay their bills. They, uh, providing food and clothing for their families was not something that they were able to do because they were victims of fraud. There was no federal welfare program at the time of the early church. 
they didn't get paid, they suffered because of the selfishness of their employers. But this was also the early days of Christian persecution. And if there was any class that was more likely to be persecuted than any other in the early days of the church, it was the poor. The wealthy knew people. They had connections. The poor didn't. The wealthy, they had places that they could run to and possibly go hide. The, the, the poor didn't. These were the ones that knew suffering and they knew sorrow. And so James addresses them and tells them in the midst of suffering, they should be patient. And he tells you and he tells uh, me the same thing this morning. Look in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So whatever kind of suffering that you're going through or will go through, the path to hope is patience. Now, why would James say that? Because practically speaking, this is one of those pat answers that we really don't want to hear from people when we're going through a hard time. It's one of those platitudes that when you're hurting, someone says it maybe in good intention, and it's just like, that was sort of an insensitive thing to say. When you're involved in intense suffering, the last thing you want to hear is, hang in there, have patience, just wait it out, you can do it. Why? Because it doesn't sound like good advice. Who wants to be patient when you're in the thicket? You don't want it to wait. What you want is you want it to be over. You want it to be done. They might have good intentions, but yet it doesn't seem helpful. But James is not instructing we who suffer to be stoic and stubborn. He's asking us to be patient with gospel promises. He wants us to rest in what he instructed all the way back in chapter 1, that you can have joy in suffering because the Holy Spirit is making you more like Jesus in your suffering. He wants to prepare your heart for the day that you meet Jesus. He wants you to be prepared to receive the crown of life. You know, one thing that um, when our kids are sick and I give them Tylenol ibuprofen, one of the things that I will often say to them is now just wait 20 minutes or so and that that medicine will, will kick in and that sore throat, that headache, whatever it is, will, will feel better after that. And why do I do that? It's because I understand that when you're suffering, even on a childlike level, it's helpful to know when the end is going to be, when it's going to be over, when you know that you can reasonably expect relief. It makes it a little easier to bear. But what if that suffering isn't alleviated? You get stuck on that roller coaster of great hope, and then those hopes come crashing down. And then maybe it goes back up again, and then it comes crashing down. It's the ups and downs of the hope in suffering. You're trying to hold on to faith, but more than anything else, you are like the psalmist in Psalm 13 when he cries out, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me 
forever? And sometimes suffering seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like forever. Like it's not going to end. Time stands still when you are overwhelmed in pain and grief and agony. But James says, be patient. When does he say to be patient until? He says, until the coming of the Lord. Now, I'm going to argue that that statement can be discouraging. Because James, in James's day, it's a very early letter. He was writing to people that were living about 20 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. It makes sense. He just went up 20, 25 years ago. He's going to come back. But here we are now, about 2,000 years later, and though we anticipate Jesus coming back at any time, the signs don't seem to point in that direction yet. So why would James write this? I think it's because it gives us the hope that when all is said and done, Jesus is going to make every wrong right. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sickness. Imagine And the hope of that day when sin will be no more, whether it be this afternoon, whether it be 20 years from now, it should give us the motivation to hold on to Christ for as long as it takes. And in verse 7, he exhorts us to be like farmers. Let's look in verse 7 again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, I don't know of many other professions that have to display a higher degree of faith and trust than farmers, right? They plow, they plant. That's that's really what they can do. They can maybe take out their their large sprinklers, whatever they're called, and help in, in that sort of sense. But really, all they can do is wait and trust. And that is the example that ought to teach us how we are to suffer. We're to wait for God patiently. Notice that he also tells us in verse 8 that we are to establish our hearts. The word here carries the idea of strengthening or standing firm in one way or another. It gives the image of preparation. Now, when I was in college, I spent more time in an 8 by 8 brick room practicing music than I care to admit. Hours and hours in this small, tiny room working on my voice, working on the piano. But anyone that has been serious about music or even sports for that matter... Uh, knows that you can't just walk into a concert hall, you can't just walk onto the football field uh, on game day and expect that you are going to be ready for the kinds of pressures that are going to come your way during that performance or during that game. 
And it is the same way with our hearts. We need to resolve now that we are going to suffer well. We need to practice now how to hold on to Jesus. We need to strengthen our hearts now for the coming day. Because one thing that I've learned is that suffering will always surprise you with its uh, power to overwhelm you. It threatens to undo you. You will be surprised by the questions that come into your mind about God. And if you are not prepared, you could be swept away by the floodwaters of suffering. And the reason, he says in verse 7, that we must establish our hearts is because Jesus' return is at hand. It's imminent. That's a theological word for that it could happen at any time. So when we establish our hearts, we rest them, we rest our fears in the Lord. Where are you this morning? Is your soul tired? Rest in the Lord. Are you overwhelmed? Rest in the Lord. Why? Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It seems like an awfully strange and out of place thing to write, doesn't it? It just seems like some random proverb that he just throws out there, but I think it makes perfect sense because what happens to most people when they're under pressure? Admit it. You get cranky. It happens. You start worrying. You have anxiety, and so your, your attitude might change. And some people, when they are under stress, are so touchy that anyone that approaches them for even good reasons, it's almost like poking the bear. You just don't know what is going to happen. And I've been in ministry long enough, and I've observed people long enough, that stress, suffering, and hardships uh, bring out what is truly in the heart of someone. Someone can seem the most faithful person in the world, the most steadfast uh, that you can imagine when things are going well, um, and they've convinced you that they're seasoned and mature, and then something happens. And their character displays something that you never even expected. And that kind of an attitude and suffering is dangerous. Why? Because look at verse 9 again. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We need to establish our hearts now. Don't let the stress and the anxiety of suffering get the best of you. Let Jesus walk with you in your pain. You know, maybe I was a bit uh, harsh earlier when I said we don't have uh, uh, the ability to be patient in our culture today. Two days shipping doesn't seem like an eternity, and if they can be out of stock, you can just 
Uh, we can wait a bit. But when it comes to suffering, impatience is such a natural reaction. But we serve a God who works on a different timetable than you and I do. Look at what the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter. Do not overlook one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He works on a different schedule than you and I do. He has different purposes than we do. Brothers and sisters, we must be patient in suffering. But second, I believe that James also tells us that we need to be, uh, be recalling God's goodness in suffering. Recall God's goodness in suffering. You know, sometimes being a pastor is a paradox uh, because the, the expectation is, especially in times of crisis, that the pastor is the one that goes in and he provides hope and he provides uh, ministry and care uh, of Christ to the souls that are suffering. But there have been a handful of times when I have gone in to minister uh, to someone who is either in their final hours um, or in great times of need. And I leave the hospital room or the, the house where hospice is going on and I feel like this person ministered more to me than I could have to them. That they are like my pastor when I go in there. There's something about sitting with the suffering that does that. And God is very good in using the example of suffering saints to point us to His glory and His goodness. He uses their example to encourage us to persevere through the pain, through the sorrow, through the heartache, and the grief, and to look to Jesus. And throughout Scripture, there are countless examples that we see where God was pleased to use the example of others to instruct us. Look, at me, look, look with me in verse 10. As an example of suffering... And patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, some have taken this verse, I think, and have misapplied its meaning. Uh, the Mennonites, for example, uh, they look at a verse like this and say, you, you see here, we are uh, to be patient through suffering. We should not fight back. Uh, that somehow suffering, even in the midst of persecution, uh, that we're just supposed to lie down and just take it. Jehovah's Witnesses obviously have the understanding that this is to be taken so literally that we are to refuse some sort of medical treatment, uh, uh, blood transfusions and, and, and things like that. But I think both of those are misguided in what James is saying, and it's not giving some sort of treatise on a just war theory or some sort of medical exemption policy. But James is saying here that in the face of suffering, Regardless of whatever form it takes, we have a weapon that no government can provide. We have a greater medicine than any pharmacist can concoct. We can speak in the name of Jesus Christ. And in his name, in his gospel, there is power. There is 
Uh, It's not power in the way that the world would define it. It's power in the way that God would define it. In verse 10, James tells us that those who spoke in the name of the Lord, those who exercised patience and faith and suffering, persevered to the end. And we consider them blessed, is what it says. Why? Because they have received the crown of life that James talked about in chapter 1. And if these saints who endured uh, are considered blessed, then how much more will you be considered blessed when you persevere in suffering through patience? God is so good in providing examples for you and I. And perhaps there's no better uh, example in Scripture besides our Lord Jesus who embodied suffering like Job. If you remember the story of Job, uh, he is believed to be a contemporary of Abraham around that time. Uh, He was incredibly wealthy. He was considered a sage in the faith. And one day, he lost everything. His house, his livestock, his children, his health. And though his wife may not have perished, it may almost be as if she had because she basically tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? Well, that's sort of losing a relationship when your spouse talks to you like that. And yet look in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, the, the, the perseverance of Job, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And yet through the entire book of Job, Job suffered greatly and he would not let go. And it turns out that as you're going through the book of Job, you see that it's not necessarily Job that is holding on to God, but it's God that is holding on to Job. Job would have lost Uh, even his faith, if the sovereign hand of God had not held him up. And God sustains you and your suffering, abiding in Christ, and you see his goodness in Jesus. I've had a few conversations with people who look at verse 11 and they scoff. And what they've been through, I can't imagine. And though they've been faithful, they struggle to see God's goodness when they see the harsh realities of of life and they question the purposes of God, they they question God's compassion and God's mercy. How is God merciful by letting this person suffer in this sort of way? That's a fair question. And though my answer may not be satisfactory, I think that the Scripture points to many examples of people who received these great promises of God and never saw them in this life. They died, never having seen the promises, here at least. Does that make God unjust? No. Not at all. What it points to is a God who has a completely different perspective than you and I. We think that mercy and compassion means complete and immediate relief. But that's not always God's understanding of mercy and compassion. God's understanding is much different. 
His mercy and compassion doesn't always come in relief from suffering, but His mercy and compassion does always come in a person. Jesus Christ, the God-man who not only recognized the depth of the human experience, but actually experienced it Himself. We often reduce the gospel down to the idea that Jesus died for our sins, and that's good, and that is right, and we ought to rejoice in Him doing that for us. But the gospel is so much more than that. Not only did God, uh, not only did Jesus live the perfect life in our place, not only did He die the death that we deserved, absorbing the wrath of God, not only did He rise from the dead to provide victory of sin and death on our behalf, but Jesus, in his perfect life, also suffered perfectly. He never once wavered in his trust in God through suffering. He never once yielded to the temptation to give up or give in. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. That's a powerful statement right there in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That isn't saying that Jesus' character and his person were perfected throughout his life, but rather to saying that his suffering made his death efficient for us. His suffering was perfect for us. So what does this all have to do with God's mercy and compassion? It means that in Jesus we have a Savior who is not only compassionate and merciful to save us from our sins, but who suffered in such a way that He identifies with your suffering. He knows what it is like Therefore, even in our deepest agony, in our darkest night, we can call on one who can sympathize with our every weakness, one who can truly comfort us in our affliction, one who can make promises and has the power to keep them, one that guarantees that, through, that though the pain is intense, though the emotional tug is, is, is very deep, though the grief is unbearable, that he is with us and he is for us, that he's not going to leave us, he's not going to forsake us. And do you know what that recipe and that reality creates? Hope. It creates hope, not hope in this world, but hope, faith, rock-solid belief that though the world be against us, though the diagnosis be terminal, that Jesus is for us, not against us, that he identifies with you and he isn't going anywhere. That is where James is going when he says, but with the examples of the older saints, you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how he is compassionate and merciful. So recall God's goodness and suffering. Recall his sweetness in Christ, his forgiving power, his willingness to become human and suffer to comfort you in your, inflict, in your affliction. God is good. And you need to recall this. And he is good to you, chiefly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, we need to walk in integrity and in suffering. When I was uh, in seminary, I had a professor who married a Mennonite. 
And I don't know why I'm picking on the Mennonites today, by the way. Um, but one of the interesting things about Mennonites is that they don't take oaths. And so, uh, primarily on this verse, uh, and one from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and he told us a story of when his wife was emigrating from Canada into the United States, that they went to, uh, they went to customs, and they wanted her to take an oath that she would obey the laws and the regulations of the United States of America. And she wouldn't take the, the oaths. Uh, it wasn't that she didn't that she wasn't honest or that she wouldn't be, uh, that she wouldn't break it, but she simply didn't believe in taking oaths. She believed that her word was good enough to say uh, based on her faith. And that's pretty foreign to most custom agents. So this guy was completely baffled on what to do. He, he left uh, the customs room, came back about a half an hour or an hour later, and apparently brought a supervisor. And they went up to her and they simply said, all right, look, Will you obey the laws and the regulations of the United States? Can we trust you not to cause trouble and do these things? She says, yep. And they let her go. So you might say that that's sort of a legalistic example of linguistical gymnastics, but I think that her position was grounded in the principle that James is teaching here. Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers, don't swear by heaven or by uh, earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. Now, I think this is obviously based on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It says, again, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair on your head white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no, anything more that comes from evil. So what's the point here? James is instructing us not to take a rash vow. It's based on the idea that Christians ought to live in integrity. As part of living in integrity is being good on your word. If you swear that you're doing something, whether it's a a careless word from your tongue, you ought to fulfill it. And it's especially reckless when we put it into the not-so-modern uh, phrase of when people say something like, I swear to God, I'm, I'll do this, or I swear to God this happened. And though you've heard that maybe countless times, James is saying, don't do that. Don't even think about it. Don't swear to God. Don't swear to other things. Uh, Because when you're doing that, you're binding yourself to those things. You're calling on them, and you're calling on God as being a witness against you. And when you do and you fail, you not only make God uh, look like he's not good on his word, but you're also bringing deeper and deeper judgment on yourself. Instead, we ought to simply say, I'll do it, or I won't. And you follow through. So the question is, what does this have to do with suffering? Seems like a completely random thing to put in here again, but I think that James has demonstrated that he understands the human condition. And in its most times of uh, intense times of suffering, we can easily start to bargain. In fact, it's the fourth step on the grieving process bargaining. God, if you do this, if you relieve it, I will do such and such. And what tends to happen 
If he does come through, will you keep your bargain? It, I'll tell you what's easy to do. It's, it, it's easy to make a rash vow. I swear to God, God, if you do this, I'll do that. God comes through and you're so excited, you're so happy that you have this relief. And then you either forget your vow or you say, yeah, I said that, but it probably wasn't the smartest thing to say. And your state then would be worse than you were if you were suffering. So what's the solution to this? How does let your yes be yes function here? I think it applies to when you're going to pl- of, of where you're going to place your faith in the midst of a trial. It's either, yes, Lord, I am with you in the midst of this pain, or it is, I just can't go there. Don't play the game of faith and then walk off the field. Wherever you are today, whether you're in an intense suffering or whether you're preparing to suffer and you're not ready for it, I believe the Holy Spirit is telling you today to resolve in your hearts now, yes, Lord, I am with you. I may not be down with the circumstance, but I am down with you. And if this experience is what brings me closer to you, and if this experience shines a light to others about your goodness, then let it come, Lord. Yes, I will give thanks to you, even in the darkest hours. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever, Lord. So folks, whatever's going on in your life, be patient in suffering. Recall God's goodness and walk in integrity in suffering. You know, the extent of our faith is shown in how we handle difficult times. God has not promised us that life is going to be easy. It's not promised that it's going to be good, but he has made life sweeter in our suffering because it produces endurance, makes us more like Christ, and brings us closer to him. And the road to those goals are patience, trust, and integrity. Will you today and trust not only your good times, but also your deep sufferings into the mighty, sovereign hands of God. Will you resolve today to be patient until the day He takes you home or He comes to rescue you? Will you resolve to remember His patience and His steadfast love toward you? And will you live out the rest of your days displaying integrity and showing uh, your joyful weight on the day when He says to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, suffering is a, is a hard topic. We don't necessarily like talking about it. We want to run away from it in, in every regard, in every fiber of our being. But Lord, you have purpose in it. There is joy in it. Because in it is where Jesus is. And so, Father, would you have the Holy Spirit comfort us today? Give us the enabling power to be patient, to remember your faithfulness, and to continue the rest of our days in integrity as we wait in joyful hope for the coming of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with me as we uh, close out our time together?